Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hello, this is Martin Grote with an article from the October-November 2021 issue of Forbes magazine, America's premier business magazine, brought to you by Airs LA. This article is on page 166, The Pope's Corruption Problems. The reform-minded Francis hopes the upcoming trial of one of his top cardinals will show he's serious about cleaning up the Vatican's finances. New information indicates that the troubles may boomerang back onto the pontiff himself. By Gerald Posner The biggest financial criminal trial in the history of the Catholic Church, scheduled to restart October 5th in a makeshift courtroom in the Vatican Museums, has been carefully positioned as a critical moment for reform-minded Pope Francis. It's a chance for him to signal that no one is above the law, and he has a two-year investigation, a 487-page indictment, and charges against a once-untouchable cardinal to back it up. So far, so good at least in terms of a branding exercise, as the world's biggest media outlets breathlessly declare it a landmark fraud and corruption trial, and the Vatican's trial of the century. Behind the scenes, though, this case, a soap opera in clerical robes, complete with allegations of fraud, scandal, and nepotism, has a real chance to boomerang back on Francis. Forbes has spoken with dozens of Vatican sources over the past few weeks, and what emerges is a striking counter-narrative, a continuation of the self-dealing favoritism and lack of due process that leads all the way up to the Vatican's absolute monarch, the Pope himself. Among the new revelations, the Pope received a damning briefing about the Cardinal now on trial years before he was indicted, yet let him remain in his position. Francis approved the raid that suddenly pitted the Vatican's prosecutors against its financial watchdog. An outside director says a meeting with Francis to warn him about the approaching legal catastrophe was blocked by the Pope's personal secretary. Insiders use the term Friends of Francis to explain why some Vatican officials are being prosecuted and others aren't. The Pope's Dossier Problem the trial narrative starts in a former Herod showroom in London's affluent Chelsea neighborhood. The church hoped to convert it into 49 luxury apartments, but the murky 350 million euro investment turned into a 100 million euro loss for the Vatican, much of it donations from the faithful set aside for the Pope to distribute to charity. Connected fixers and middlemen, some of who are defendants in the current trial, collected tens of millions. The chief defendant, 73-year-old Cardinal Angelo Becchio, had until 2019 been one of the city-state's most powerful clerics. As Sostito, substitute, Becchio directed the Vatican's day-to-day -day management, and he was the only official who did not require an appointment to meet with the Pope. The indictment places the major responsibility on him for the London fiasco and also accuses him of nepotism by funneling $825 million to his brother's Sardinian charity and 575 million euros to a businesswoman who was also indicted and her Slovenia-based company that was hired as a security consultant. 
Prosecutors contend that about half that money was spent on luxury designer goods and lavish vacations. In theory, the indictments of a once-trusted close ally offered the possibility of historic Vatican accountability. Vecchio and the businesswoman adamantly deny all allegations. But the Vatican is a sovereign state, and the Pope is a non-hereditary monarch with absolute power. Francis retains unrestricted authority to intervene in criminal and civil investigations or trials, change or waive existing rules or procedures, even block senior clerics from testifying. While this trial marks the first time in Vatican history that a cardinal will be tried by lay judges and prosecutors, that judge and those prosecutors work for the Vatican and the Pope. And it's not so simple for Pope Francis to distance himself from Cardinal Becciu, despite having removed him from his post and stripped him of his rights as a cardinal a year ago. According to a former Vatican official, in a position to know what transpired, Pope Francis directly received a secret dossier some five years ago that supposedly set out incontrovertible proof about Cardinal Becchio diverting more than $2 million in church funds. His Holiness closed the file. That was the end of it, the ex-official told Forbes. The information, that source says, was never passed to the Vatican's version of a public prosecutor, the promoter of justice and Becchio then continued overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of the Vatican. Francis strongly intervened in the case through the investigation that produced the current indictment. In one instance, he gave an extraordinary carte blanche to the prosecutor, Gian Piero Milano. It allowed Milano, a former ecclesiastical law professor, to unilaterally order any searches and seizures without regard to the rules in force. It also freed the prosecutors from routine oversight. That left the defense without any recourse for contesting the evidence accumulated during the investigation, a right they would have had in Italy and most of Europe. The result, emboldened by the Pope, was a series of unprecedented raids in late 2019 on the Secretary of State's offices and the Supervisory and Financial Intelligence Authority, the Vatican's financial watchdog, better known by its Italian acronym AIF. The latter move was particularly startling. Francis's traditionalist predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI, under intense pressure from European financial regulators, created the AIF and issued the Vatican's first law against money laundering in 2010. Francis, who ascended to the papacy with the reformer's agenda, quickly found himself in the middle of unraveling that progress. The Pope's James Bond Problem For most of the past decade, the key person in the Vatican's attempt to clean up its own act has been René Brulhart, a Swiss lawyer and anti-money laundering expert appointed by Benedict. Brulhart had already taken on one mission impossible, overseeing Liechtenstein's financial intelligence unit. Colleagues at the Egmont Group, a worldwide umbrella organization that seeks to root out corruption, hailed Bruhart's reforms as he removed the notorious tax haven from global financial blacklists. He later joined the group as vice chair. The Vatican, similarly, was a small principality in which entrenched power often worked to undermine reforms. Over seven years, Brulhart established the AIF as a vital internal watchdog that earned praise from European peers. The business press dubbed him the James Bond of the financial world. 
And as the London property deal went south, the AIF began conducting a multi-jurisdictional investigation trying to follow the money. Things changed after the Pope's blessing to raid his auditors. Well-intentioned or not, this move dealt a major blow to the Vatican's financial reforms. The Global Consortium of National Auditors suspended the Vatican's AIF over concerns the raid had compromised confidential information about ongoing criminal investigations. Seven weeks later, Bruhlhardt surprised everyone by resigning. Two members of his independent board followed. Forbes has learned that one of them, Mark Odendahl, a retired Swiss and German investment banker turned philanthropist, quit only after a meeting with the Pope was quashed. Concerned that the AIF had been transformed into an empty shell, Odendahl reached out to Cardinal Pietro Perolin, the Vatican Secretary of State, whom Odendahl says arranged the meeting. But the Pope's gatekeeper, Archbishop George Ganswein, blocked it. I wanted to give the Pope a direct fraternal and professional warning of the consequences of his action, Odendahl tells Forbes. The stakes rose this summer when those indicted by the prosecutors included Bruhlhardt himself. It was a shocking move, considering that Bruhlhardt had been considered the Vatican's biggest financial reform asset. The thrust of the charge against him is that he violated basic rules governing supervision by allowing the London investments to proceed. Yet Bruhlhardt's intelligence unit had oversight only of the Vatican Bank, not the Secretary of State's office from which the entire deal was hatched, executed, and supervised. And while Bruhlhardt could lead the overall planning and goals for the Financial Intelligence Unit, he had no executive power and could not approve any Vatican transaction or money transfer. The case against Bruhlhardt smacks of personal payback, and that's a problem for Pope Francis. Multiple sources, all of whom requested anonymity for fear of drawing the enmity of church leadership, say Bruhlhardt made powerful enemies among the 825 citizens in the insular city-state with his by-the-book Swiss approach. Clerics in a 2,000-year-old institution were instinctively resistant to regulations created by financial bureaucrats in Brussels. In a place where many believed that rules could be bent and favors traded as a matter of right, Bruhlhardt was judged to be inflexible. His James Bond image, burnished by his matinee idol looks, impeccable slim-cut suits, and mysterious press-shy air, also did him no favors in the Vatican. He was a minor celebrity in a place where only the Pope is supposed to be a star. According to insiders, Vatican traditionalists regarded Bruhlhardt as a newcomer who was too full of himself. They also noted that European regulators had repeatedly lavished praise on his efforts at reforming the Vatican Bank, while simultaneously criticizing Vatican prosecutors, the same ones who have now charged him for failing to take sufficient action on a suspicious activity that his AIF forwarded to them. An Italian attorney who worked with one of the prosecutors before he joined the Vatican tells Forbes that in his conversation with his former colleague, they thought the Brussels regulators were the types who got along with Bruhlhardt. They were cut from the same cloth. One prosecutor derisively referred to Bruhlhardt as the golden boy. Evidently, in the months preceding the indictments, on at least one occasion there was a heated argument inside the office of the promoter of justice over whether to indict Bruhlhardt. 
Multiple sources say that a report from the European Consortium this past June, which lauded the Vatican's progress in transparency but criticized its prosecutors as insufficiently resourced, and the London deal as a red flag sparked fury in the prosecutor's office. A month later, Bruhart was indicted. Bruhart would not comment about the case against him, but his lawyer has told the press that he intends to fight the charges. Meanwhile, the Vatican press office ignored numerous questions and requests for interviews from Forbes for this article. But Odendahl, the AIF director who resigned after being rebuffed from meetings with the Pope, dismissed the indictment as probably personal revenge from the lead prosecutor, Gian Piero Milano, with whom Bruhart had a difficult and strained relationship. As Odendahl sees it, even if Bruhart beats the charges, the prosecutor will have successfully banned and tarnished the reputation of an adversary. No downside. The person responsible for this is the Pope, Odendahl adds. He has made the wrong decisions and appointed the wrong people, all the while pretending he is fighting against bad people. The Pope's Friends of Francis Problem the Pope's association with the case also arises in connection with Gianluigi Torzi, one of the Italian businessmen who brokered the London property deal. The prosecutor charges that Torzi managed to insert a last-minute contract provision that gave him control of the London property, and he used that to extort 15 million euros, which he denies. And while the prosecutor says the pontiff didn't personally authorize any payments, Francis has attended at least two meetings in which Torzai claims he discussed the final terms of the investment deal. Cardinal Parolin, whom Francis appointed Secretary of State in 2013, has overseen the London investment since the beginning. He approved the Torzai contract in which the trick clause was allegedly added. He was also involved in efforts to repay the loans and may have approved one transaction that Vatican prosecutors say was fraudulent and which he personally considered opaque. Archbishop Edgar Peña Para, the cleric who replaced Cardinal Becchio in 2018, also oversaw the London investment and arranged Torzi's meeting with the pontiff. Monsignor Alberto Perlasca the chief of the administrative office for the Secretary of State, was also amid the flurry of contracts, principles, and the ever-changing list of affiliated offshore companies connected to the London deal. None of those P's, not Parolin, not Peña Para, not Perlasca, was indicted. In a related case in the United Kingdom, the Vatican prosecutor contended that those three clerics were merely gullible dupes who were ultimately deceived by Becchio and others. But this is where the Pope's ultimate authority creates a haze that might threaten his reputation. Vatican insiders often look at decisions in this area through what they call a Friends of Francis lens. Was Becchio the sole bad operator at the top? Or is it just a coincidence that Becchio had already lost favor with the Pope by the time the prosecutor's investigation got underway, while those excused for gullibility happened to be the ones still in Francis's good favor? For many observers, it's tempting to reach that conclusion, says John Allen, Jr., a journalist who covers the Vatican. Allen says the fact that Parolin and Peña Para were so close to the Pope would have made them politically untouchable, whereas Becchio, who had fallen out with the pontiff, would be considered expendable. This past March, a judge in a U.K. case that involved the Vatican petition to freeze Tories' substantial bank accounts 
noted that when the Vatican prosecutor started his arguments, he identified Perlaska as one of the three key people in an ongoing orchestrated conspiracy. Five months later, the same prosecutor contended that Perlaska had been kept in the dark about the way in which the transaction was to be structured. Wrote the judge, I find that suggestion difficult to accept. As for Pena Para, the judge observed, I find it difficult to accept any suggestion that Archbishop Pena Para would have signed such a document without familiarizing himself with the documents. Given the apparent significance of the transaction and the substantial sums of money involved. And regarding Parolin, the jurist was incredulous that he must have had the wool pulled completely over his eyes. The judge concluded that the Vatican's arguments were unsupported by credible evidence and involved egregious and appalling material non disclosures and misrepresentations. It would be logical to assume that this could all be cleared up at the Vatican trial. Don't hold your breath. The Vatican does not give defendants the automatic right to call witnesses. The magistrates overseeing the trial will decide who can testify, with an eye, insiders acknowledge, on what the Pope might think, and whether they are friends of Francis. And that concludes The Pope's Corruption Problems by Gerald Posner. If you'd like to find out more about Airs LA, the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. You can subscribe to this podcast so you can be notified whenever each new issue is uploaded. You can also tell us what you think of this podcast or any podcast on Airs LA by emailing us at info at AIRSLA.org. I'm Martin Grote, and I'll be back soon with another article from this issue of Forbes magazine. Thank you for listening. <music>